morning, there's just so much in my heart and mind, and this is a, a privileged morning for us on this special morning when we're not only remembering the birth of Christ and have a candlelight service, but it also falls on Christmas Eve on a Sunday morning. So we get to come to God's Word this morning and look at the riches of God's truth on display. But just thinking about how important it is to have a regular pulpit ministry that is opening the scriptures and proclaiming the word of God on a regular basis. And this has struck me over the last few weeks as I've been away and having different conversations, but it also has struck me as I'm anticipating 2024 and all the details that are coming out. I mean, all kinds of craziness over the last few weeks. You had a, a, a state who took a political candidate and removed him from ballot. You have other states responding that they might do the same. And I recognize this is going to be a crazy season that we're heading into in 2024. And praise God, Romans 13 is coming. (laughs) We're going to be right there as a study together as a church, looking at what the scriptures say and wrestling through these things. And it is... I'm just thankful for the Lord's kindness as he's providentially directing us through these particular details. Most importantly, what he has been doing in our hearts and lives is he has been laying for us the foundation of our core commitment to Christ, to his glory, and to the riches of his word that is ministering to us. And I'm thankful that as we gather together, we gather as a body of believers committed to the authority and sufficiency of Scripture. And that Scripture points us to the riches of God's glory and grace. And this morning, I just want to draw your attention to the glories of Christ. I guess as we start, we'll start with this question. What do you believe about Christ? What do you believe about Christ? Some might say in this particular season, the kind of trite statement that says he is the reason for the season. Indeed, he is the reason we gather together. He is the reason why the whole world collectively gathers and remembers this significant event. But I want to draw our attention to the riches and the glories of Christ, just building off of what our pastors have faithfully taught us over the last few weeks. As Pastor Nick ministered to us out of Hebrews chapter 10, 1 through 10, he's showing us the superiority and sufficient work of atonement that Christ accomplished. And then as Pastor Eric ministered to us out of John chapter 1, he ministered to us showing the significance of the incarnation But I want to draw your attention to the glories of Christ this morning out of Colossians chapter 1. But before we get to Colossians 1, just hold off. You've put your finger there. We want to start, we'll start in Matthew's account in Matthew chapter 1. But even before I get to that, let me set up the problem. I had a, and this is where I've been struggling with my introduction here, how to articulate this without being overly heavy, but over the last four weeks, I, am, uh, I was struck by multiple conversations I had with individuals who had rejected Christ, individuals who were hardened in their own heart towards the truth, 
as they were pushing back against the message of God and the message of his word, I was just listening to their arguments. I was rejoicing in what the scriptures have presented for us. The scriptures have presented a clear message of the glories and the riches of Christ. But I have seen hard hearts responding to the gospel. Most recently, even yesterday, as I was getting my hair cut and cleaning myself up to present myself to you, my hairdresser had asked at that time, what do you do? And I said, well, I'm a pastor. Why did you choose that job? (laughs) And I thought later, as I was driving away, I should have said to her, it's not a job you choose, it chooses you. But at the time, I responded with, well, my life was a mess. I was in rebellion to God. I was living for myself and for my own desires, living in open rebellion, pushing God away, and I fell fat on my face. And in the riches of God's grace, he shared to me his word, his scripture, and I saw the glories of Christ, and I could do no other but give my whole life to him. That's what I shared at that moment. And her response was, oh. <laughs> As if this just completely not, means nothing to me and move on. And from the rest of the time, the whole conversation was very quiet. <laughs> that time on. But that was just one of multiple conversations that I had over the last few weeks that struck me of the contrast between the heart of man naturally and what God presents in his word. And I just want to show you this contrast. Because I've seen the man as he is there, kind of compliant, not hostile to Christ, not angry per se, but defensive, deflecting, calling everyone else hypocrites, pushing against and rejecting the truth because it doesn't make sense to them intellectually or doesn't meet their experience, filled in their own heart with bitterness, filled with disappointment, filled with conflict, filled with selfishness and idolatry. They are pushing against anything that God has revealed. And their hearts and lives are filled with emptiness, filled with hopelessness, filled with despair, filled with confusion and suffering. And as they are living in this particular state, rejecting the truth that God has revealed, elevating their own reason and elevating their own experience, they don't see how they are spiraling down the Romans 1 fall, rejecting God, pushing against him. And as I was interacting, I was in a measure of despair. Because I lived that very experience, I know what it was to come to the very end of myself and to see the riches of God's grace on display and to recognize I have no power within myself. I need the mercy of God. I was in that moment thinking through this and I thought to myself, how ironic. As I was in these conversations, I thought, how ironic of a season Hardness of heart, and yet God throughout the whole world is sharing to all that could see that his mercy and his grace and his love is on display. Year after year, 
season after season, God demonstrates the riches of his love towards sinners. And we remember that on Christmas. We remember the riches of God's love. But it struck me in seeing all this, and again, I was asking the question, what do you believe about Christ? And they would say, well, yeah, he's a, he was a good man, maybe even a good prophet. Yeah, he was a, a righteous man and a good example to follow, but he certainly isn't what the scriptures say that he is, the son of God. Why? Well, because it doesn't make sense to me. It doesn't make sense how God can become one of us. It doesn't make sense that he would enter into this world. It doesn't meet up with my experience. It doesn't align. And that's where I thought the contrast is. The natural man, the natural heart says of God, God, you must communicate with me in such a way that I understand it makes sense to me that it matches with what experience I want to have and then I will follow you. I'll give my life to you if it makes sense to me. And I thought, that is such a contrast to the riches of God's glory as presented in the Christmas message. So let me point this out to you. Let's start with Matthew's account of the birth of Christ. Turn over to Matthew chapter 1. I just want to show you God unapologetically describes the birth of Christ, the entrance of Christ into this world, and he does it in such a way that it is an absolute assault to the natural mind. It's an absolute confrontation of the self-sufficient man who thinks on the power of his own wisdom and his own understanding, he can determine what is right. That he knows by his own natural empirical observation, he can determine what is true. Or by his own personal experience, he can validate truth by his own experience. The birth of Christ absolutely destroys that. Notice Matthew 1, starting at verse 18. Now the birth of Christ, of Jesus Christ, was as follows. When his mother, Mary, had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. Okay, just unapologetically here, Matthew lays out, Mary was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. Where's the empirical evidence of that? How do I reproduce that empirically? How do I go back and prove that event? This, this again, miracle. Verse 19, Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. But when he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife. For the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. Now all this took place 
to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. And Joseph awoke from his sleep and did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took Mary as his wife. Stop there. Marvelous details surrounding this event for the birth of Christ are stark. And the natural man is saying, God, you must operate in such a way that's reasonable to me. Here, God enters in with complete demonstration of a power and authority. He comes charging into this account and doesn't ask Mary for permission, doesn't say, hey, Mary, I'd like to do this. He already accomplishes and declares to Mary exactly what he is doing. Mary, you're the one I have selected. You are the one who is going to bring the Christ into this world. And the one who is coming into this world, his name is Jesus, and he is going to save his people from their sins. And just in case you're confused about who this one is, he is Emmanuel, God with us. A declaration from God, not asking man to reason with him, not asking man to to experientially affirm. He is now simply declaring what he is doing. God has come. God is with us. God is with us rescuing us from our sins. Turn over to Luke's account. We read it this morning in Luke chapter 1. No less mysterious, no less marvelous and magnificent. Luke's account tells the story from Mary's perspective. As Matthew's account tells the story of the birth of Christ from Joseph's perspective, the father... Luke's account tells the birth of Christ from Mary's perspective, the mother. And naturally, it's longer. Notice. Good, you're listening. I'm making sure that you were listening. Verses 26 through 38. Here's what Luke records for us. Now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee called Nazareth. To a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph, the descendants of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And coming in, he said to her, Greetings, favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was very perplexed at this statement and kept pondering what kind of salutation this was. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive and in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. And Mary said to the angel, How can this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered and said to her, 
and the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you and for that reason the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. Marvelous demonstration. And what I find striking by these two accounts of the announcement of the birth of Christ is how God simply declares his powerful work. Not coming in such a way as to say, I need to work according to what's reasonable to you so you comprehend this, but God demonstrating his power and his work to say, here is what I'm doing. This is what I'm accomplishing. It's what I'm going to do to demonstrate my love towards those who have rebelled against me. Here's what I'm going to do to bring about redemption and deliverance. It's a striking contrast. And Christian, as we boldly proclaim this message, I want you to understand that you live in a world where man is naturally hostile towards the things of God. Hostile to God, pushing against what is right, demanding God to operate on his terms. And at the birth of Christ, what we see is God doing the exact opposite. God operating on his terms and his purposes. To demonstrate, as Christ entered in this, into this world, to demonstrate the coming of the Son of God, the coming of God who would dwell among man, who would be God with us for the very purpose of bringing about redemption. So that this Christ whom we worship, we, this Christ whom we come and honor, deserves all the honor and worship that we could give him. He deserves our whole life and our whole devotion and dedication. And that message is hostile to the natural man. One might ask in the midst of all of this, then why would we pay so much attention to this Christ? Why would we pay so much attention to this one? And that's where I want to focus the rest of our time in Colossians chapter 1. Turn over to Colossians chapter 1. Particularly, we're going to read and work through verses 15 through 20. See the glories of Christ announced in this marvelous passage. Because we recognize when we come and announce Christ with boldness, when we announce Christ with confidence, we're not announcing him from a position Uh, of weakness. Actually, we're announcing him boldly and confidently because he deserves that recognition. And Paul makes that clear to us here in Colossians 1, 15 to 20. The glories of Christ are demonstrated here, and what Paul does in this passage is he gives us nine characteristics of Christ that makes him preeminent. Nine characteristics that we'll draw out. Obviously, we won't be able to thoroughly expand every one of them, but at least I can point them out to you as you work through this text. You can see the preeminent Christ. The reason why he is the center of everything. 
Why we come on this season, the Christmas season, and reflect on Christ is because of his preeminent place. He deserves all glory. He deserves all of our devotion and attention. He, in fact, is the only one that can take broken lives and give them purpose and meaning. And that's what's demonstrated in this marvelous text. And it's certainly what causes us to worship around Christmas season as we come to reflect on the glories of Christ. That's what Paul says here. Paul sets it up. He says, He, this Christ, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is also head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him, and through him to reconcile all things to himself. Having made peace through the blood of his cross, through him I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. Some have argued, Jesus never claimed to be God, and his disciples never claimed that he was God, and I say, oh, on the contrary. From the very announcement of the birth of Christ, the angel Gabriel said, this is Emmanuel, which means God with us. From the very announcement of Christ's entrance in this world, he has been declared the Son of God. And now, Paul, in this marvelous passage here, in Colossians 1, 15-20, draws our attention to these truths, and he highlights these very things. He highlights the glories of Christ. And the very first thing he says is that he, Christ, is God. Notice again verse 15a. He is the image of the invisible God. The exact representation. This, this uh, word image, icon, could either mean manifestation or representation. It can have the idea of a representation, kind of like you grab a coin and you see the head of a president on that coin. You can say that is the representation of Washington or whatever coin you're looking at. Or it can mean manifestation, that he is the direct revealing or manifestation of God. The point in this particular case is Paul is driving it is that Christ is the representation, the manifestation of God. How do we know that at the end of that phrase there? Of the invisible God. That which was not known, not seen, not recognized, has now been made known as we can see. It's been manifested to us. Christ reflects the glories of God. Paul emphasized this right out of the gate here. Speaking of the greatness of Christ, no other... No other can be said to perfectly reflect the glories of God. It is Christ and Christ himself who can do that. Certainly at good moments when we are 
walking in the Spirit, when we are responding to the truth, when we're speaking the word and love to one another, we are a dim reflection of God's glory. But he is the perfect reflection of God. He is the exact image, the exact manifestation of the invisible God. You would want to know what would God be like. Look at the glories of Christ. See his life, his example. But he goes on and he adds another. He is Christ's preeminence above creation. Notice the second half of verse 15. The firstborn of all creation. He is the preeminent one, the head of all creation. Firstborn. It's interesting that this word firstborn has a bit of misunderstanding because it seems to imply uh, birth, procreation. Seems to imply here that he was the one who was born first, but clearly that was not the case. Many have been born before he had come. So what is the emphasis of this word, prototokos, firstborn? The emphasis of this word is that he has the place of preeminence, the place as the head. In fact, that is as this word has primarily been used. It's been used 130 times throughout the Old Testament and New Testament. The idea of this word is the idea of the firstborn's privilege, firstborn's position. And if you wanted to go investigate, you can go back to Deuteronomy chapter 21, and you can look at chapter Deuteronomy 21, verses 15 through 17. And in that count, Moses is describing a man who has two wives, and he had a child with the first wife, and then he had a, another son with his second wife, and his second wife was his favored wife. And Moses says, you cannot take the firstborn child of your second wife and give him preeminence over the firstborn child of your first wife because that firstborn child is prototokos. He is the firstborn. He has the place of prominence. This is the term or the idea here. He has the preeminent position by rights. Christ not only is the image of the invisible God, he has the right of preeminence above all of creation. Above all. All of creation. And then that's how Paul expands it in verse 16. Notice verse 16. For by him all things were created. The word for there is a, a clause in the Greek called a hati. And that word actually is giving an explanation for why he is the preeminent one of creation. Why is Christ in the role of prominence? Well, it's because he is the creator. And this is the third point that we are observing. Christ is a creator. He is the creator. Verse 16, for by him all things were created both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, where the thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created by him and for him. And this is significant because he's not only talking about the created order in every physical thing you see, but he is talking even about authorities and rulers. All authorities and rulers, all, all how societies function and operate, he designed it, he created it. He is the creator. This is what gives him the preeminent role as head over all. It's also what gives him, demonstrates his miraculous power. 
everything you see, everything you understand, everything context you operate in, it's created by God, created by Christ. He's moving and accomplishing all of his good purposes, and he does all of this, which demonstrates his preeminent place, his center place. And why is he preeminent again? Because he is the exact representation of God. Come on this particular day, we recognize the birth of Christ, and what we recognize is that the Creator entered into our world and dwelt among us. The one who is the preeminent over all of creation walked among man. Is God? Is the preeminent of creation? He is the Creator, and fourthly, He is preexistent. Notice the beginning of verse 17. He is before all things. Again, when someone would want to argue, well, Jesus is just another good man. He's just another prophet. He is just another good spiritual leader. He's just another good teacher in a line of many good teachers. In fact, yeah, he might be the best teacher, but he's just another man. No, no. He is before all things, preexistent. Before anything existed, before anything came, out, uh, came about, before anything came into existence and, and operated, He was. He is. In fact, I love it in the present tense, He is before all things, emphasizing His eternality. Could have said, again, he was, and putting it in a past tenses. No, he is presently even dwelling in eternity. He is before all things. And then, second half of verse 17, he is the redeemer in this phrase. And in him all things hold together. Now, this is an interesting Statement. Because initially, I had understood this statement to mean that Christ is holding the world together from spinning out of control. That Christ is protecting and preserving creation and keeping it operating in such a way that it doesn't spin out of control and head into chaos. And that would be a true idea. And certainly would capture the idea of holding all things together here at the end of verse 17. But that's not the word here. It's actually not the word at all. Let me show you this word by taking you to the book of Romans. Because we saw this word in Romans a couple of times. Turn over to Romans chapter 3. Two occasions that we've seen this. Romans 3 and verse 5. And Romans 5 and verse 8. This word comes out. Romans 3 and verse 5 says this. But if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, the word demonstrates is our word in Colossians 1.17. He is a demonstration Turn over to Romans chapter 5 and verse 8. It comes out again. But God 
demonstrates his own love towards us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Again here, the word demonstrates is the word we're looking at in Colossians 1.17. One more time, turn over to Romans chapter 16 and verse 1. The word, same word is used again there. And he says, I commend to you our sister Phoebe. The word commend is our exact same word. So what is Paul saying? What he is saying is that he is the meaning for which everything exists. He is the demonstration. He is the focus point. He is the one who is to be commended or recognized. He is, again, to use that kind of trite statement, when you say the reason for the season, what we're saying, he is the significance of, what, of all things. He is the purpose for all things. And I say for, how would I illustrate this? I was trying to capture what exactly Paul is emphasizing as we turn back to Colossians 1.17. What is he saying is in this particular emphasis? And I guess the best way I could describe it is this. It's kids who put together the little bracelets, those little uh, uh, bead bracelets. And they grab a piece of string as they're sliding the beads on. And you hold it all together, they tie it all up in a knot. That, that knot holds the whole thing together. It is commended to keep that bracelet together. You break that knot, those beads go everywhere, as every parent knows, as they've tried to clean up many of those bead bracelets. What Paul is emphasizing here in Colossians 1.17 is that he is the center of all that is created, the significant one. He is the one that holds it all together. The whole significant reason for why everything exists. He is, to be, he is the demonstration for why creation exists. He is to be commended and acknowledged and lifted up. He has the significant role to be lifted up, praised, honored, adored, for he gives all of creation significance. You remove Christ from the equation, nothing makes sense, and everything runs to chaos. You put Christ in his place, and everything gives identity, significance, and purpose. He is the Redeemer, the head, the one who gives all of creation meaning and purpose as Paul continues in verse 18, he is also the head of the church. There at 18a, he is also the head of the church. He is the one who leads, directs it. He is the one who builds the body of Christ. He is the one who supplies gifts to the body of Christ to edify and to build up and to transform. He is the one who is, again, giving us instruction. As we come to the word of Christ, the scripture, as, he, as we listen to the scripture and the spirit ministers to us to give us understanding of the truth, illumines our minds, it is Christ leading us and directing us. It's the head. He's the one to whom we look for direction. 
And again, this is going to become absolutely essential for us as we move into the next year with all the chaos and difficulty going around as everyone's pulling to their own, towards their own fears or their own desires, moving in their own authority, the church is going to have to listen carefully to the head of the church. Very carefully. Because we will be severely tempted to put our trust in ourselves and our own reason and our own understanding. And we're reminded here in Colossians 1.18, He, Christ, is the head of the body. He's the head of the church. He moves. He directs. Not only are we reminded of the significance of the birth of Christ and His life among us that we come and worship Him, we also recognize His authority and His preeminent place and rule among us. If that's not enough, Paul continues and says that he is the firstborn from the dead so that he himself will come to have the first place in everything. Again, he is the preeminent one in the resurrection. And again, the same use of the word prototokos doesn't mean that he was the first one resurrected. It means that he had the significance. His, his resurrection is most significant. There were many resurrected before Jesus was resurrected. You have in 1 Kings chapter 17, Elijah raising the widow's son from the dead. And Jesus himself raised a widow's child in Luke chapter 7, and even Jesus raised Lazarus. So there were at least three resurrections before Christ was resurrected. So the emphasis here in Colossians 1.18 is that Christ is the most significant, the preeminent resurrection. Why? Because when he was resurrected, God had demonstrated that he was satisfied with the death of Christ and that su supplied atonement for sin. He is the preeminent one in the resurrection. His priority, first raised from the dead. And all this, eighthly, comes to verse 19. We see in him, in Christ, the manifestation of God's glory. Notice verse 19. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him. All the fullness of the riches of the glories of Christ of riches the glories of God are manifested in Christ. Certainly you go back to the life of Christ and you see that. You see his power over death, his power over disease as he healed the sick, his power over demons as they came into his presence and fled, his power over nature as he calmed storms, his ability to understand the heart of man and to call out the, the, what man was thinking in his own heart. His demonstration and power over sin as he's able to forgive sin. Indeed, he demonstrated the fullness of God's glory when he walked and lived on this earth. This leads us to the most important aspect of the glories of Christ. As we've been noting, he is God. He is the preeminent of creation. He is the creator. He is pre-existent. He is the redeemer. 
He is the head of the church. He is the firstborn from the dead. He is the manifestation of God's glory. And the last one, he has reconciled man and God. He has reconciled us to God. Notice verse 20. And through him to reconcile all things to himself. The all things here is that Christ has bought, brought order to the heavenlies and what's below. Christ brings order. The whole rebellion of creation against God, the opposition of man against God, Christ brings an end to that. And he restores man back to God so that once man had been separated from God, estranged from him, we have now been restored back to God and we can call out to God, Father. And he hears us. Again, it wasn't by our reasoning, it wasn't by our experience, it wasn't by something within us. It was demonstrated by the work of God through the Lord Jesus Christ. The only way we enter into God's presence, the only way we find peace with God is through the Lord Jesus Christ. We don't earn it. We can't reason our way towards it. We can't buy that reconciliation. There's nothing within our own abilities that make us uh, capable of earning this. This is a gift of God given to us in the sending of his son. Once again, then I'd ask, what do you believe about Christ? As I would say again to those various individuals that I sat with over the last few weeks and interacted with, Understand in the hardness of your heart, you don't want to come under this particular truth. But God boldly and unashamedly announces that there is forgiveness for sin through Christ. And I would pray this morning that if you had struggled with that message and struggled with living for the glories of God, that you would Humble yourself and see the riches of his grace on display in his word. For God boldly announces that he has sent his son and that all who have come around him have seen the riches of his glories. And as Paul demonstrates in this marvelous text here, this Jesus is no ordinary man. This Jesus is the very son of God. He is the very one that we come and worship each and every Sunday, but he is also the very one we acknowledge on Christmas as the very gift that God has given to the world. And I pray that you know him as your Lord and Savior. Let's go before the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you for these truths. Thank you for the marvelous work of Christ. Thank you for your ministry to us. You have opened our eyes to see the riches of your grace. You've lavished us with your grace and mercy. And even in those moments of ups and downs, as we have walked through the course of this world, we have seen over and over again your love and your kindness and your mercy. And as we minister your word to the lost, and as we share your truth to those who are living 
in rebellion to your word, we ask that you would use the power of your word and your spirit to change and transform hardened hearts. And those would see the riches of your word and no longer push against your truth, but humble themselves under it. For indeed, nothing is impossible with God. For you're able to move and direct according to your purposes. And as we look out at creation and the vastness of what you've created, you have demonstrated your marvelous wisdom. You've demonstrated your immense knowledge. You've demonstrated your glorious power. But most of all, we know you as your people. We know you in your patience and mercy and love lavished upon us. That you are long-suffering with our frailties, kindly ministering to us your truth, giving us everything we need for life and godliness, building us up into the images, uh, image of Christ so that we can reflect the riches of your glory. And so we pray, Father, as we come into this Christmas season, we pray that the glories of Christ would be so preeminent in our hearts and minds that he would have the first place in everything that we would take all of our lives and bring it under him so that he would be lifted up, that we would indeed decrease, that he would increase, that we would be humbled by the very privilege of speaking the message of the king let alone being called the king's servants, let alone being called children of God. We are overwhelmed by the gift that you have given us in Christ. So may that gratitude and love and appreciation always fill our hearts and minds as we minister to everyone. And we ask, put yourself on display. It's in your blessed name we pray. Amen.